The following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. All religions teach the need for cultivating virtue and conquering vice. However, as we perform a holistic study of various meditative and contemplative traditions, we find that different explanations, different teachings, different principles were taught in accordance with the idiosyncrasy, the skills, the language of their practitioners, of their messengers. While the outward forms might seem different, particularized to a specific geography or moment in history. In reality, when we examine the heart of meditation within all religions, we find that they are universal. There is a common thread. There is a synthesis regarding how to establish within oneself an alert, serene, clarified, cognitive state that has the capacity to perceive the inner depths of a thing. All these traditions emphasize the need to develop the capacities of the consciousness, the virtues of the soul, by comprehending and removing the different psychological contaminants that afflict our daily state. In our tradition, we spend a lot of time and emphasize how to practice meditation 
And we have received a very beautiful gift from our teacher, Samael and Vior, whose books and writings offer a profound practical basis by which to understand and interpret the variety of religious forms that we have been graced with. What is unique about his writings is that they specifically target the core teaching of meditation, the principles, the archetypes, the practices and blueprints by which we generate a new way of being, a virtuous state, a compassionate heart. What's interesting, likewise, is that his writings are very clear. They are very refined because they synthesize thousands of years of teachings about meditation. And so there is a lot of knowledge, a lot of wisdom contained in his books. But unfortunately for many people, his writings are difficult precisely because they are given in a language that is directed for the consciousness, not the intellect. We make a very clear distinction between the mind, intellectualism, rationality, and a state of understanding, comprehension, real insight into the problems of life, which, if we're honest with ourselves, we can find that our mind creates problems for us. The intellect cannot know anything beyond its domain, which is the acquisition of data to compare and contrast information, to label concepts upon phenomena. The mind is a useful instrument when it is placed within its orbit. When it is cultivated with a real deep understanding of the virtues of the heart. What's interesting about Samal and Vior's writings is that they are very potent. They are very refined, as I said, very synthetic. He is often referred to as the master of the synthesis, much in the same way that you can take 10,000 roses to produce a five milliliter bottle of rose oil, which is the size of your thumb. Likewise, Salman Vior gave us a wonderful gift in which he extracted the essence of diverse religious forms to arrive at a very pure understanding of religion, of yoga, of spirituality, of meditation. Unfortunately, as I was implying, for some people it is too much. It is too strong, his writings. His teaching is very potent. His name in Hebrew, interestingly enough, means 
the perfume of God, the aroma of divinity. Some aisle. Now, what's interesting is that it is also the poison of God because it is very strong, very direct, very profound. His message goes to the core of what we are and clarifies and points out the obstacles of the mind. It is poison to the ego. It is a knowledge that very expediently, directly, and powerfully approaches the fundamental issue of why we meditate, which is to cultivate virtue and to conquer our vices. For some people, when approaching his writings, it is good to understand the context in which he had written and provided this knowledge. What's very useful is to study his books on meditation, such as The Revolution of the Dialectic, Treaties of Revolutionary Psychology, and The Great Rebellion, in conjunction with proven traditions, ancient methods, so that we understand and have clarity that this is not just the teaching of one man, but it is universal. So in this lecture, we're going to really synthesize many points that he made in relation to meditation, practical techniques, the science of knowing oneself, but also complementing his wisdom is the traditions in which he also studied and extracted and synthesized and refined that knowledge. You'll find many explanations in this lecture regarding Buddhist meditation, especially from Tibet, the Mahayana traditions, and Tantrayana traditions as well. Because, as I said, they all share the same roots. So, in explaining this synthesis, we will touch upon these traditions and how they all connect so that we can radically achieve a profound state of serenity and deep insight into our daily problems. We explore the purpose of meditation, why we meditate, why we reflect, and why we approach spirituality. Meditation is a science in which we explore our inner reality, our states, our psychological nature, our qualities of mind. So that by separating from the world, from the senses, from the distractions of life, from the hustle and bustle of modern living, we can begin to gain a clarity and understanding of how we produce our own suffering. There are certain things in life that we cannot control. There are certain events in our politics, in our society, in our culture that appear to be beyond our scope 
of influence, things that we cannot change. While there are many problems in life that afflict humanity, and while we may feel overwhelmed by the, by the chaos that has been afflicting many people, we can learn to understand our own agency in this, to comprehend what we can do in this mess, what we can do to change our own daily problems, our sufferings, our confusion, our fears, our morbidity, our disillusionment. We practice meditation in this tradition because we really want to understand why we are in pain. But more importantly, how to cease suffering. If you've studied Buddhism, you're very familiar with the four noble truths. And that in life there is suffering. That suffering has causes. And that the causes of suffering can cease. But likewise, there is a path known as meditation that leads towards the complete nullification of our conditioned, suffering, psychological states. Meditation is the process by which we gain information about who we are, about our own psychological contaminants, defects, errors. One has to be very confused to think that one is perfect in life and that we don't possess some type of fault or a chip on our shoulder. Most people do recognize that they have errors but don't really know the process by which to actively look at them, confront them, comprehend them, and eliminate them. So meditation will provide us the groundwork by which we can do this, in which we can see within ourselves without confusion or assumption or belief or preconception about what is really going on. Most people are in a state of perplexity, confusion, disorder, ignorance. Not because we lack some intellectual knowledge, but because we don't understand how our behaviors produce the consequences of our life. It is a law of nature. We follow the trajectory of our actions, our behaviors, our choices. If we're in a very negative situation, and while we like to blame our neighbor, our community, our spouse, whomever it may be, we have to be honest with our own mind. We have to be very direct with ourselves. 
and to really look where we don't want to. At the causes of our present circumstance, of how we ended up and where we're at. And if we're not happy with our situation, we have to go within. We have to look at our choices and not to defend our sentiments with such vehement emotion. with animal instinct, with terrible fear. We have to look honestly to observe in ourselves what we have in abundance and what we lack. For some people, meditation is a means of acquiring spiritual experience, and this is very valid and useful. But the truth is that even having some blissful state in which you escape for some moments the conditions of, and limitations of your own mind, the only purpose of that is to inspire you to look at yourself further, to examine what keeps you encaged. What are the obstacles in our life? What are our repeated, observable, cyclical behaviors? In what way do we keep repeating the same actions in the same circumstances? And why should we expect a different result? But the tendency is to ignore our own culpability, our own responsibility, our own agency. So meditation will provide us the means by which we can really reflect on our quality of life, our state of being, our purpose for living. If we are suffering a lot, if we're confused, if we're distracted, but we feel in our heart a deep inquietude, a deep yearning or uneasiness in our very being, we have to listen to that. That is what guides meditation. That is what guides our introspection. That is what drives us to understand what spirituality is, what to do. So there are three trainings in diverse traditions. You find this dynamic, especially within Tibetan Buddhism. You find it in traditions like the mystical doctrine of the Sufis, the mystics of Islam, three degrees or stages. You find it in Freemasonry. You find it all throughout the world, which proves and emphasizes that there are steps to meditation. It is a scientific approach. These are based on laws. These are laws of nature. If you wish to enter and develop to realize a real state of equanimity, 
of internal divine perception, you have to fulfill the causes and requisites of their fruition. Believing or not believing, thinking or not thinking, assuming or rejecting with our mind, our heart. does not indicate any real change because psychological transformation is based on the actions that produce them. And just as nature has its laws, so likewise, our spiritual life has laws. Divinity has laws. In the East, this is known as karma. This is cause and effect. Action and reaction. For every effect, there is a cause. and every cause, there is an effect. It is inescapable in the same way that gravity is inescapable. You can believe that gravity will not affect you and therefore leap off a cliff. We can believe whatever we want, but nature does not adhere to our preferences, our assumptions, our ideologies, our concepts. Nature is nature. So in this approach to meditation, we are very factual. While we may have a lot of literature and concepts that we study intellectually, the real blossoming of the soul is based on enacting superior causes and conditions, superior ways of being, a higher level of being. Because if you follow superior actions, you will produce superior results. It is a basic law. In science, they call it invariance. In which, if you produce an action, you must face the consequences of it. Maybe not in this lifetime, maybe not in a few days, but eventually you will. And so by enacting superior ethical behaviors like compassion, kindness, generosity, moral and psychological purity, we produce a conduit or a psychological matrix in which we are generating and activating our real potential. The truth is that we need to create a space within our psychology that is conducive for realizing the spirit, our inner divinity, our inner God. When we lack serenity in our daily states, we can't see clearly within. This is why ethics is the foundation of all meditative traditions. If you fulfill a horrible action, if you lie, if you steal, if you kill, not only are there physical consequences, societal repercussions, confrontations with the law, we really in turn disturb 
the waters of the mind. We become agitated. And just like a lake that cannot reflect clearly the heavens upon its surface when it is churned, in the same manner, our mind cannot reflect anything positive within its surface. If we are engaging in negative, harmful behaviors, Instead, what we will have is a whirlpool, a storm, a hurricane, which for most people defines our life. But there are ways to train, and the beginning is to train in ethics. Refrain from harmful behaviors. Enact positive, conscious behaviors. We call this self-observation in our tradition. We observe ourselves. We examine moment by moment our thoughts, our feelings, and our actions, our impulses, our instincts. In the same way that a director of a film looks at an actor in a scene, the actor is your own mind. It is your own negative emotions. It is your own instinctual, animalistic habits, behaviors. The consciousness, the soul, what we call the essence, is the director. We are looking within, we are examining our mind, examining our heart, examining our impulses to be. In this way, we are learning to distinguish and discriminate what to do in life, in the moment. We call that conscience, following the inner judgment of our heart. That is the voice that emanates from divinity. The mind can rationalize and debate this behavior is good. I should do this and have many justifications. And yet we taste the after uh, aftermath of the consequences of that. Bitterness, remorse, sorrow. It's better to have foresight rather than hindsight. But so long as we are making changes in our daily life, we can, in turn, progress. We progress based on ethics. Again, acquire information by observing yourself. And by learning to fulfill the intuitions of your heart, the voice of conscience, we learn to navigate the boisterous seas of our life. Things begin to calm. The waters settle. And in that way, we start to acquire states of samadhi. This is a word in Sanskrit meaning bliss, ecstasy of the soul. We start to experience blissful states of consciousness as we are working with concentration. We're beginning to integrate our mind, which is usually very dispersed and diffused, distracted amongst multiple activities and obligations. The mind tends to be all over the place. But as you're learning to observe yourself and remember yourself, remember what you're doing in any given moment, you begin to integrate your consciousness. You start to strengthen it so that you gain continuity in your perceptions, in your alert, novel, perceptive states, so that you can begin to understand something more profoundly in you.
As you access that, you feel bliss. You feel a sense of joy. You feel inspired. You feel elevated. As you begin to recognize that you are not anger. You are not pride. You are not fear. You are not resentment. You are not lust. You are not desire. You're something much more than that. Some people have written to us online with a lot of distress. A lot of unhappiness saying they have tried these techniques and methods and yet they continue to suffer a lot. They have very, many negative thoughts. Many fears that they can, they say they can see in themselves. They recognize they have defects, but they are not changing. And they just feel very dark and sour. This proves that one does not have ethics. One is not awake. If we are not paying attention and seeing the mind for what it is, then we are identified with it. We feed it our energy. We invest ourselves in that self, in that anger, that pride, that fear, that morbidity, that resentment. Instead of separating it and not feeding it. Because when you recognize yourself, you feel joy. You feel happiness. You feel bliss. You feel samadhi to a degree. I know some people like to refer to samadhi as some elevated mystical experiences within different dimensions. But the truth is that samadhi or bliss has to do with our perception and quality of being here and now. You will recognize a selfless state when it happens as you're cultivating superior behavior in your mind, in your heart, in your body. Samadhi, the bliss of the awakened consciousness, a concentrated perception is such that when you are not invested within the different modifications of your consciousness, the different defects you carry within, you begin to subsist within your own true nature, which is, which is the soul, which is the essence, the consciousness. In this way, as you're very established in that state, you enter profound wisdom, which in Sanskrit is known as pranya. Pranya is the capacity for insight when you really go into the depth of a phenomenon. And even within noumenon, the truth, the thing in itself, the essence of a given thing. Profound wisdom is the capacity to have profound perceptive understanding and analysis of very obscure things, qualities and states that are not accessible to the physical senses. They are apprehended by first developing concentration. And when that is very strong, we begin to see things, have visions within our meditations. We can even physically leave our body and enter the superior dimensions of nature, which in Kabbalah is known as the tree of life. We need to cultivate all these qualities in ourselves. They are predicated and grounded within one another. As you begin to develop ethics, you establish a blissful state of concentration to a degree. 
happiness and joy and recognition of your work and your successes and also your failures by learning to move ahead so that with enough practice, we develop profound wisdom. And by having insight into different experiences of life, but also within meditation, we begin to feed our ethics even further. So these work together. They complement each other. They funnel and feed within each other. These dynamics are very deep and they are interrelated. You cannot separate one from the other. If you want success in meditation, you have to consider these in their totality. So there are different types of meditation. We can talk about two specifically. There are meditations that are focused on stabilizing the consciousness. And there are meditations that help us to analyze, to develop perceptive, critical understanding of whatever we are focusing on in our practice. When we stabilize the consciousness, we are learning to concentrate. Right now, our mind is all over the place. In the beginning, concentration is the capacity to focus our attention on one thing without being distracted. If you sit, close your eyes, introspect, and simply look at your quality of mind. In the beginning of our discipline, we find that we're thinking many associative thoughts. There's a chain of comparison and contrasts. Thesis and antithesis, good and bad, memories relating to other situations that relate to something else, and the mind wanders. And if we forget that we have sit and that we sat down to meditate, to look within, we can recognize that we lack concentration. We don't remember what we're doing. We're not focused on one thing and not being distracted by others. This quality is very important. And it's necessary to, in the beginning, learn to concentrate. Learn to stabilize your perception, your consciousness, so that you can focus on one thing and not get lost. If you examine your day, you may find that if you're taking public transportation, you start thinking of other things or daydreaming, maybe listening to your iPad or iPod, music player, thinking about something that happened to you earlier in the day, not paying attention to your surroundings, not being aware, and then we forget our stop. It means that we're not awake. We're asleep. We're distracted. We're daydreaming. We're not conscious. That has to change. You learn primarily to develop concentration when you are learning to be aware of yourself, your surroundings, and your internal states at all times. If you are learning to self-observe very effectively throughout the day, your meditations are going to be very strong because meditation as a state of being is based on the capacity to focus throughout the day. This is genuine willpower. Now, in the West, we like to think of willpower as something aggressive, violent, Abrasive, perhaps. 
But willpower is really the effort of the consciousness to place attention on one thing with serenity. Genuine willpower is very gentle. It is not mental exertion. The mind investing a lot of energy in thinking or the heart in feeling or the body in acting. The consciousness is beyond that. Conscious will. It is the capacity to perceive without having to think or to rely on negative emotions or instincts. It is a serene perception and introspection within oneself. It is a state of equipoise. It is quiescence in which with your willpower, you're learning to observe yourself and not get distracted by anything. To be alert and attentive. As you are doing that, much in the same manner as you're riding a boat that rocks with the waves when you are moving, when you sit still and maintain your focus by holding on to the mast of the ship and don't move, eventually the waters will calm. And then you can start to see things clearly. The storm passes. It's the same thing with our mind. With willpower, we learn to sit still from a state of perception. In meditation, we learn to calm the body, calm the mind, calm the heart. And in that way, you're gaining an understanding of how chaotic your mind was. You don't get identified with it. This state is known as calm abiding in Sanskrit. Shamatha or Tibetan Shine. It's very important to develop this. You do this with concentration exercises, but also learning to self-observe yourself and remember yourself throughout the day to not be inattentive or asleep. We also have analytical forms of meditation, which relate with the capacity to perceive with clarity. There is visualization exercises in which you perceive non-physical imagery. If I tell you to think of an apple, you can see it. It's not a physical thing, but it's in your mind. That is visualization. It is the capacity to perceive non-physical images, which is important when we learn how to perceive and understand ourselves. In the beginning, our capacities to visualize tend to be very weak, very dispersed, very clouded, very obscured. But with analytical forms of meditation, like visualization practices, we strengthen the capacity for the soul, the consciousness, to see within. We do this through exercises like retrospection meditation, in which we learn to visualize our day, what we thought, what we felt, what we did. You can review your day from the morning to the evening or the evening to the morning. You visualize what you saw in yourself and what happened. You rely on facts. In this way, you begin to comprehend the different defects that manifested in you from moment to moment. This is how you gain inner vision, internal understanding. You start to see yourself in a new way. You look at the observable facts of your existence so that you can gain real, deep, lasting knowledge about 
what actions are wrong and what you can do to change them. Some people have called this faculty clairvoyance. Unfortunately, it's a French term meaning clear vision. It was created by, the term was created by a group of French initiates who wanted to establish a technical language and flavor to their art so that the uninitiated would not basically disturb them in their practices. And so this term has unfortunately harmed many people in the sense that many believe that clairvoyance or this visualization capacity, this dynamic is something only for the exceptional and the few, when in reality it is merely the faculty of imagination. To see within, that imagination can be subjective, meaning conditioned by our own negative internal states, our defects, our egos, or it could be purified and clear, conscious, undisturbed, objective. This is known as insight, the Sanskrit vipassana. So let's talk about some qualities of concentration. I already mentioned a few. Real concentration in the end is effortless. I know in the beginning, if we sit to focus perhaps on a candle, observing the flame is one practice you can do, or in the exercise of self-observation, in the beginning, it takes a lot of effort. It is very intense to stay alert because you find as you're trying to observe yourself that you forget, you get lost within the mind. You forgot what you were doing. So it takes a lot of energy within the consciousness to be present. But as you really cultivate concentration within yourself, it doesn't take any effort. Because when you establish the momentum and that quality and way of being in life, it's natural. It's serene. It's calm. We make a very clear distinction between mental exertion, the mind, and the effort of the consciousness, the willpower of the consciousness. Because the consciousness is serene, it's calm. It happens spontaneously, even, as you're training yourself, so that you can respond to any situation in life with understanding, with wisdom with compassion. In the higher stages of concentration, there is no effort involved when it is perfect. In that way, it's unafflicted by desire, by defects. As I said, concentration relates and can relate to a state of bliss in which as you're observing yourself, you're not tossed about by the mind. You're not hurt by your own anger because you've created a space and sense of separation enough that you can look at yourself without getting caught up by being swallowed by the animal. Instead, you confront it, you look at it with equanimity, with calm. And in that way, you are inspired. You have bliss. Because as Samalanvira wrote, the greatest joy of the Gnostic is the discovery of one or his or her defects, because a discovered defect will be a dead defect. 
So there's joy in that work. It's a continuous process. And when concentration is really maintained throughout the day in a continuous, persistent, and disciplined manner, gently bringing ourselves back to the present moment, we develop what's known as mindfulness, continuity of attention. Self-observation is the capacity to observe yourself in a moment. But maintaining that throughout the day, that continuity is known as mindfulness. To remember yourself all the time. With practice, you gain clarity of yourself. You see and understand your daily states without labels, without conceptualizing what is going on, saying perhaps this is anger or this is pride or this is fear. Instead, you just look at yourself. You see yourself. While it's important in our studies to understand the different qualities of our defects, it's important not to get caught up in terms. Sometimes we refer to seven deadly sins or a legion of defects to help us have some type of groundwork to approach the complexities of our mind. When I'm talking about developing self-observation, you learn to see how each ego works together, but also individually. And defects are not easy to categorize, if we're really honest and look at ourselves. Because anger can be proud. Lust can be gluttonous. Fear can be angry. Vanity can be greedy. Each ego has a unique flavor that we have to understand, to comprehend, and not to box up in some category in the intellect. The type of perception and concentration we're talking about is not strictly limited to a set of ideas. It's something really deep. As you're observing yourself, you gain a more vivid and intense and stable consciousness. The consciousness becomes much more robust as you exercise it in the same manner that by going to the gym, you get stronger. It's also one-pointed in the sense like if you are really investing your whole heart and concentration within your consciousness, you're able to direct it at one thing, at will, and to sustain it at will for however long you want. This is what it means to be undistracted, and it's that foundation that allows us, or allows us not to be obscured within ourselves. When you're able to look at something with your consciousness without obscurations, without being distracted, you start to understand the inherent nature of that thing. It is selfless. Self-observation, when the consciousness is looking within, does not have a self. It is clear. It is unconditioned. To be very specific, the ego is, in Latin, a term for I, the myself, the me, my desires, etc. That is the self we have to observe and understand and know, so that by comprehending them, we can eventually remove them. But the consciousness does not have a conditioned sense of self there. It is perception. It is knowing. It is understanding. It is liberated. But it is not 
based upon a sense of I. This is something that you can only understand through experience and through the practices that we're going to elaborate. So the basis of concentration involves some teachings from the Lamrim, Chenmo, from uh, Tsongkhapa especially, a great Tibetan Buddhist master who explained in his writings some ethical foundations and some stipulations that can help us to develop base, uh, basic concentration. One of them we already mentioned is an ethical lifestyle. If we are killing, stealing, lying, performing sexual misconduct, indulging in alcohol or intoxicants, negative behaviors, extortion, crime, etc., that we have no basis by which to concentrate because our mind will be a complete storm. Ethical livelihood, a compassionate lifestyle, is our best defense against negative circumstances in life. As Samal Anvira wrote, the best weapon in life is a correct psychological state. I believe this is from Treaties of Revolutionary Psychology. Ethics has to do with living appropriately in the given moment. Cultivate your mind. Cultivate a better way of being. We also need to cultivate an environment that is going to help us rather than hinder us. A conducive environment has to do with establishing a space in our home or having some place to go to meditate. For some people, their home is not an option. Maybe we have roommates or other people nearby, neighbors, whatever it may be. We have to learn to cultivate a space or have somewhere to go to practice. It's ideal if you can have a room in your home that you can dedicate to meditation, have a very beautiful space or altar, because that devotion and dedication to a particular space an environment for practice can charge us with a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of joy to really continue our work, to really aspire in these studies. For some people, maybe a room is not an option, but instead one has a corner of their apartment or home or a park they go to or a temple they go to. Whatever it is, we need a conducive environment that is going to facilitate our Capacity to concentrate within. And in that way, we have to learn to reduce desire. The desire for more. For some people, we have attachments to future expectations or longings for a better situation, better environment, better circumstances. Maybe some people... And it's common in the Gnostic movement, want a Gnostic spouse, feeling and thinking that they can't meditate or enter the path if they're not married. And this is a illusion. Whatever our desires for more or a different situation, we have to learn to reduce our attachments. We have to learn to become like renunciates, as you see in this image of Buddha Gautama Shakyamuni, shaving his hair off before he became an ascetic. 
he eventually entered the wilderness in order to fully dedicate himself to meditation. Now, we're not advocating that type of extreme practice, fakirism, or living in the wild, to just meditate all day and only eat a grain of rice. That's a little extreme, or actually very, very extreme. Instead, what we're learning to do is that we learn to be content with our situation. We have to renounce our attachments, our desires for a, a different situation. We have to learn to accept what we have. We are where we're at in accordance with our actions, our karma. Our situation is a direct reflection of our mind, of our mental states. The internal is a reflection of the external, says Immanuel Kant in his philosophical treatises. If you want a better situation in your life, we have to learn to be content with what we have, the blessings that we've already received, to accept our karma like the hammer and the anvil. It can be painful, yet we have to learn to get comfortable with it. Adverse situations, difficult situations. If you're changing your mind, transforming your mind, having gratitude for the gift of life, the fact that we still have a consciousness that can work, despite maybe a physical, emotional, or mental illness, we can learn to really transform ourselves. I've known people in these studies who have suffered really terrible illnesses, whether physically or emotionally or mentally. I know one person who was suffering from schizophrenia, and by learning to comprehend his own inadequacies and faults, and by learning to get treated and helped, has achieved great progress. There are some people who have a physical ailment, who are paraplegic, who can't walk, who are sick. There is one example of a meditator who is dying of dysentery. If you're not familiar with that, it is very painful and yet was still developing his meditation practice. So, reduce your desires. Accept your situation. It's not easy, but if you do, and if you learn to renounce useless activities and distractions, we really can radically change. So, some useless activities, obviously, we're probably all very familiar with this. I mean, for some people, it's television browsing the internet, doing useless things that don't really produce anything spiritual for ourselves, but yet we tend to gravitate towards these things because our mind is agitated. We want to do something. We're seeking some type of activity. By reducing and renouncing useless activities, we learn to spend more time in useful activities like meditating, developing concentration. We have to have a supportive posture as well, supporting our Spine in a way, relaxing deeply so that we can calm the body, but also forget about it. So the important basis of concentration is that our posture has to be adequate enough in which we can relax it completely and no longer be identified with its itches or scratches or discomforts. 
calm your body, spend a lot of time relaxing it, learn a position that is useful for you. It could be full lotus or half lotus, particularly for Easterners, this tends to be more common. But for Westerners, we can sit in a chair or lie on our back. Although I do recommend that if you are learning concentration for the first time, to do so sitting up in a chair because sometimes laying on our back can be so relaxing that you forget the practice and you fall asleep. If you want to relax to the point that your body can suspend its activities, your senses calm, then you can look within completely, but without forgetting what you're doing. And for this, we have to learn to work with energy. The consciousness needs energy to work. It cannot be active if we are not working with our vital forces, our mental forces, our emotional forces. Every action requires energy in life, without exception. If we're wasting energy, whether mentally, physically, or sexually, as we explain in our tradition, is the most important energy we need to work, then our consciousness will be depleted. It will not be able to awaken in a good way, in a positive, pure, clear way. We need energy to awaken the soul. And if you're interested in learning more about how to work with creative energy, especially, you can study Samal and Vior's The Perfect Matrimony or books like Kundalini Yoga and The Yellow Book. As you're working with energy, you're withdrawing your senses. You're working with exercises like pranayama, which is the practice of controlling your breath to circulate the vital forces of your body. And in that way, you are withdrawing your attention from the external world. You're introspecting. You're entering your own psychology. You're calming. You're achieving quiescence, equanimity, dispassion. As you're going within, you're developing mindfulness. You're not forgetting what you're doing. Mindfulness is important when you're developing concentration, as I said. You need to learn to self-observe throughout the entire day. Not just for one moment, but for our entire daily states, our entire life. It's important to abandon distractions. We already mentioned this. Things that are really pointless, as I said. Abandoning distractions is also not only just physically renouncing activities, but it's learning to avoid the distractions of our mind. If we're sitting to concentrate upon something and your mind is thinking of something else and wants to go over some minute detail in your day, it could be good to really look at it for a moment and then abandon that distraction. Return to the point of your practice. If you're sitting to practice with a specific purpose, I recommend that you fulfill that. You stick to your guns, so to speak. Don't do something else than what you intended at the beginning of the practice so that you have consistency and continuity because the mind will look for any excuse and opportunity to do what it wants, which is the wander in the mind. Vigilance helps us to really establish concentration because, it's, as I said before, with mindfulness, we learn to be awake at all times. To be in vigil means to not sleep. But vigilance also has to do with the clarity and quality of our perception. To really see oneself with greater depth, with greater vividness, intensity, and purity. Awareness, as I said, has to do with remembering oneself, being aware of one's environment, and observing oneself moment by moment. 
All of these help to establish concentration. If you practice these very heartfully, these principles, you will radically progress. Some basic concentration practices include focusing on external sensory objects. This is very good for beginners, especially. We have concentration upon the breath, on the panasati, in which you only focus on the inhalations, the retention, and the exhalations of breath. If your mind starts to think of something else, just focus on the breath. This is a very useful exercise if you're really beginning to develop concentration because grounding yourself in a natural function of your body can help you to gain some awareness of yourself and some continuity in your attention. You can inhale for eight seconds, retain the breath for eight seconds, and exhale for six, uh, eight seconds, however long you need, whatever is natural for your lungs capacity. We have mantras and sacred sounds, which are vocalized sacred words. Mantra literally means mind protection. It is a vibration of sound which reverberates within our body, within our internal physiology, and also within our consciousness. Sacred sounds are a great way to charge your body with energy. They help you to focus as well. It's good in the beginning to mantralize aloud. It's useful to vocalize these sounds because there is a physical benefit to them. Now, there are practices in our tradition like the runes, which you can study on Glorian.org, in which you adapt postures in your body and vocalize sacred sounds in a company with prayer so that these energies and vibrations activate different centers of your psychology and your physiology. It's also good to pronounce sacred mantras. You can whisper them throughout the day if you want to maintain your attention and concentration while you're at work. You can also do it mentally if you don't want other people to notice, especially. We work with all three aspects. The physical, vocalized component. There is a whispered component, and then there also is a silent recitation in the mind. Swami Shivananda wrote that Silent japa, mental recitation, is the most powerful because it requires the most attention and skill. I recommend that you work with all aspects of this. Spend some time vocalizing aloud in the day. You can also whisper them as well, but also mentally pronounce these mantras when you're engaged in your daily life. This will help you maintain really profound concentration and mindfulness. You can also concentrate upon the pulsation and circulation of your heart. This helps you to relax. Focusing on your heartbeat is very beautiful. It really grounds you in your own body. Helps you to realize that your heart and your physiology, your body, is a beautiful living thing with intelligence, with life. We often ignore our own body throughout the day. We're tense, we're uptight, we're agitated. By learning to relax your body, by focusing on the beats of the heart, you become more aware of yourself. You become more in tune. You relax. Relaxation is key. You want to relax yourself and your body to the point that you can forget about it. With this exercise, if you're really very concentrated, your body can fall asleep and you can have an astral projection through your heart, through the chakra of your heart. Very beautiful. Very effective. 
You can also concentrate upon internal visualize and conceptualize objects like a candle or a stone. With the candle, you light one, you observe it, you look at its features, you examine it. And then close your eyes, gently construct the image in your mind. Let it appear and show itself within your imagination. You learn to observe that quality in your consciousness, in your imagination. You're visualizing the object. And if the mind starts to play with the image, which it will, simply open your eyes again. Become observant again. Observe the candle. Look at it. Then close your eyes and visualize again. With practice, you will learn to sustain an image with real intensity and vividness, with clarity, and with longer periods of time as you practice this. You can also take a stone and simply observe it. You can visualize it as well in the same way. The point is not to think of other things or let the mind do what it wants. But on this point, it's also important not to force the mind to do your practice. You don't want to exert tension in your mind. Imagination doesn't take effort in the sense that you're trying to build something in your intellect. You want to look at the image, close your eyes, gently bring it upon the screen of your attention, your visualization. If you're tense, relax. Just open your eyes, look at the object again. This is not a violent repression of the mind, beating it up, beating yourself up. It's very calm, very peaceful. If you gain some skill, you can learn to concentrate on sculptures or mandalas, which are sacred art forms. They represent qualities and principles of divinity, which can inspire our practice. It takes more skill to visualize, obviously, more complex images. And we'll talk about this in brief uh, in the next few slides. But that is one object you can concentrate upon as well. You can also focus on a plant, which is the body of an elemental soul of nature in which you learn to observe the plant's features and you visualize its qualities. If you're really deep in your meditation, if you're concentrated and fully focused on what you're doing, you can relax to the point of falling asleep and learn to enter the superior worlds to speak and communicate with the soul of that plant, the elemental of the plant. Very beautiful experience. Lastly, you can explore and concentrate upon your own mind without discernment or distraction. So this practice is not accompanied with a deeper visualization. What it is is that you're looking at your internal states. You're not trying to discern or look at the very depths and roots of these defects, but learning to just look at the flowing thoughts and distractions of your mind without getting carried away by it. It's like looking at a blue sky in which clouds emerge, they sustain and they pass. Concentration can be developed in that way. Uh, it can be very difficult for beginners, but uh, work with whatever or whichever of these exercises help you most. There are ways to deepen concentration once it's initiated. Mindfulness, as I said, is the capacity to remember what you're doing moment by moment throughout your entire day. Concentration is much more robust and strong 
as you consistently return yourself back to the origin of your discipline. Remember your practice. For some people, they like to have alarms on their clocks or their watches or phones set throughout different times of the day so that they can remember to engage in their practice. If they forget what they've done or what they've been doing, their alarm can bring them back. For some people, that can be very useful. Vigilance, as I said, is the capacity to not sleep. To be aware at all times. To remember yourself. One should learn to identify distractions in the moment. And this takes a lot of discernment and skill. If you've established some degree of concentration where you're not forgetting what you're doing, there are other forms of distractions that emerge within the consciousness, from the subconsciousness, from the unconsciousness and infraconsciousness that ripple upon the surface of our awareness. They come from the depths. So as the waters are stilling, you can learn to look within even deeply or with more profundity to learn and see the origins of distractions before they even really manifest upon the surface. Sometimes we can feel excitement or laxity in our meditation practice. You can feel overexcited or agitated, like you want results. Or you can feel lax, like you're really dull and heavy, like you want to fall asleep and simply enter oblivion. Eight hours of unconsciousness where one doesn't even dream. The remedy for excitement is to learn to reflect upon your mortality. Reflect on the fact that at one point or at some point we will die. Our life will end. Therefore, why be agitated? We have to face the reality of our circumstances, our, our life. If we're overexcited for some desire, some thing, we have to curb that by understanding and reflecting that our desires are transient. They're futile. They're impermanent. Reflect on impermanence. Nothing lasts forever in this universe. Therefore, why be attached? And then if you're lax or dull, you can practice a visualization exercise. You can imagine like a bright sun in your consciousness, in your mind, in your heart. As you see in this image of a Buddha meditating towards the sun. Imagine a bright, brilliant, golden sun within your consciousness. So that that light gives you strength or inspiration. You can also visualize any image that really gives you joy and encouragement from the diverse religious traditions so that you are inspired to want to embody those qualities. The important thing is that we have to notice an object's qualities as they are. We can't project our assumptions or ideas on what we're seeing. You just have to look at what's there. Don't let the mind label what you're seeing. And in that way, you abandon expectations, assumptions, or thinking that your meditation will end up a certain way. Some people enter meditation expecting a samadhi, an astral projection, a mystical experience, and they ignore that that very desire is what obscures their practice. We have to abandon all expectations. Let the mind settle. Simply be. And if experiences come, they will do so by their own accord when you are receptive. You can also learn to increase your relaxation in order to really deepen concentration because 
If you're agitated by excitement or, or feeling dull, you want to relax the body, but again, if you're too tense, you want to let go so much on the strain, so to speak. You don't want to be too tight psychologically. We need unwavering and effortless focus. This is something that happens in the higher degrees of concentration, in which you no longer waver from thing to thing, you're no longer distracted, but then as you're becoming more acquainted with that state, it doesn't take any effort. It's effortless. You simply will it, and it is. It's a very gentle, spontaneous, intuitive, and wonderful, blissful state. Now, if you're forgetting yourself, gently refocus upon the object. I can't emphasize this enough. Don't exert the mind. Recall your attention. Reflect upon the object. Be gentle. Don't exert yourself with thought and energy. That can be a major obstacle towards the end of your concentration practices, especially as you're advancing towards higher stages. In that, if you exert yourself to any degree, you will lose that state. For some people, they could be meditating or having even an astral projection in which they're awake in that state, but then they become fearful or engage with a thought in the moment or they exert their mind and then they lose the samadhi, the ecstasy, the experience. Don't exert yourself at that point. Let your mind settle. And if you forget what you're doing at some point in your meditation, it's good to utilize a momentary retrospection when you lose that mindfulness. So if you're meditating and remembering your object, but then for a minute you forget what you're doing, it's really good to reflect in that moment upon what thought led you down that chain of associative thinking that led you to distraction. Some qualities of insight that are really important to reflect upon. As I said, insight is imagination. The ability to perceive internal imagery. In the same way that you dream, you perceive images that are not physical. Likewise, imagination is that capacity. It is direct perception of internal reality. Dreams occur in a material dimension that is not physical. There is a different form of matter and energy there. There is a reality there that is very concrete, but it is not as concrete as our physical dimension. Likewise, our internal experiences emerge within our consciousness in the form of non-physical images, sounds, visions. This is clairvoyance. But unfortunately in us, our perceptions tend to be very clouded, very conditioned. And most of our time throughout the day, we engage in fantasy. As I said, when we were distracted, we're thinking of our coworker perhaps at an event we had in the day. Perhaps we were angered by their actions. And so we're ruminating and fantasizing about our revenge. This is negative clairvoyance. Fantasy. It's mechanical. It just happens within the mind. And we simply go with it. If we're not questioning ourselves, examining ourselves. That is a negative psychological state in which we're wasting profound reservoirs of energy within our body, heart, and mind. Real clairvoyance, we can say, or real vision, conscious imagination, pure seeing, is when 
we are looking at the contents of our experience without any ego there, any filter. In the beginning, it's going to be mixed because we're training ourselves for the first time. We're learning to see ourselves for who we are. But of course, in the beginning, we're going to be mixed, as I said. Oftentimes, in the beginning, we struggle to visualize. We struggle to see the qualities and colors of an image and to sustain that within our consciousness. It's important to reflect that there are different forms of visualization or imagination, we can say. I know I mentioned that there is a negative component, which is fantasy, egotistical, the projections of the ego, the mind, or desire. But then there is conscious imagination, which is the soul. Now, the consciousness can learn to develop its perceptive qualities by projecting an image. We learn to take a candle, as I said, you imagine it, you visualize it. You're projecting that image within yourself so that you can develop that capacity in you that can see it as it is with your imagination. But with practice too, we learn how to receive images as well. So as you're really entering a silent and serene state of mind, your body's fully relaxed, you're fully withdrawn within your consciousness, you're imagining that projected image within your awareness, the screen of your imagination, and suddenly, without you even thinking about it or expecting it, you receive something new. Perhaps a situation, a dream, a vision emerges. Oftentimes it occurs in the form of some type of drama in which you are an actor and a participant. You're witnessing yourself doing things or seeing people, seeing landscapes, seeing cities. There's really an infinitude of possibilities here of different experiences that you can have with your imagination. But the important thing to remember is that we learn to project images and remain consistent and sustain those visualizations as best we can so that we learn to receive images of a new type. This is really meditation, to receive information that you've not known before, to see something in a new way. This is an unconditioned, conscious, and clarified state. When you receive these visions or experiences, we can start to sense and discriminate that there is a very different quality to these images and these perceptions than from our daily egotistical states. And for most people, those visions occur very quickly and then they, they end. And suddenly we're back in our body, we're in our chair, we're meditating again. So this shows us that our imagination and our perceptive qualities are not necessarily sustained as, as of yet, fully developed. We can gain sparks of insight here and there. But those types of perceptions give us a lot of inspiration and joy to continue working. So these experiences become much more sustained and detailed the more we work with them. To the point that we learn to develop and access superconscious states. There are many possibilities within imagination. In the beginning, we have small visions or experiences, but with dedication for many years, we can learn to access perceptions, not only of an individual consciousness, but of a universal state of a divine perception. And this has to do with our studies of the different dimensions of nature, 
the multidimensionality of our being. We call it the tree of life. And you can study many courses on our website, but also glorian.org if you want to find more information about that. The different structures and principles and spheres of being that exist within and without. Those experiences are very spontaneous, as I said. They come when we don't seek them. But when we establish the requisites and the steps, the foundations for their actualization. So these experiences are very factual. They relate to not only our psychological states, but to different events in our life. So this is how we can confirm the reality of our perceptions, their validity, their veracity, their truthfulness, when we look at the physical facts and how they relate to what you've perceived. Otherwise, we can be clouded by our own subconscious memories, our habits, our own consciousness, our frustrated desires, and even our infraconscious states, which are deep traumas, desires or terrors within the deeper qualities of our psychological abysses. We have to be very cautious with our own perceptions, to not take them at face value, but to learn to discriminate with the heart, but also to study the teachings, the different symbols throughout various religious traditions, so that we can learn to interpret with clarity. We've given many courses before about this subject. You can study the Sufi principles of meditation on our website. One lecture we talk extensively about how to interpret what we perceive. You can also study our course, Gnostic Meditation, where we talk about those same principles. Imagination, inspiration, intuition. Some practices for insight involve visualizing or pondering, discerning an object, where you take an object to perceive in your consciousness, your visualization, and try to discern, intuit, or comprehend what it is in a deeper level. As you're learning to sustain that visualization and simply imagining it with an open mind, new insights can emerge regarding it. As I said, you start to have experiences. They unfold magically within your perception. We also have visualization and retrospection of memories and dreams. This probably is one of the most important within our tradition. It really is the bread and butter of our meditations. Because retrospection helps us to understand how and why we were thinking a certain way or dreaming throughout the day. And also in our nightly life, when we're physically asleep, we review our states so that we can understand the interrelations, the connections, and the subjectivities of our own egotistical states so that we can comprehend the ego and eventually remove them. There's a practice within Tantra Yana, Tantric Buddhism especially, in which we visualize and comprehend a deity. This practice involves imagining oneself as a divine being, not from a sense of megalomania or pride or vanity of a mystical type. Instead, it's about learning to embody the divine qualities of compassion that we find present in sacred beings, sacred masters sacred entities, the divine. And also, we can perform insight practices of comprehension of conscious qualities. Comprehending our virtues. I know some people get very caught up in the ego and are very distressed by their own mind. And we always recommend that they meditate on their virtues. 
Meditate on compassion. Meditate on what it means to love, to sacrifice for others, to be patient, to be diligent. When you recognize those qualities in yourself, you will not be easy to be fooled. You will not give up because you recognize what is real from what is false. In retrospection dynamics or meditation, you have to have some relative state of concentration. We say that typically you want to have enough concentration and continuity in your discipline that you don't forget what you're doing because you need to remember all the different events of your day. You recall your memories and you visualize them. You can take a part of the day, those that you remember most. You can also start from the earliest moment to the last or do that in reverse from the last moment of your day when you sat to meditate or are sitting to meditate and then reflect on the morning backward and forward. At some points, you will probably in the beginning recognize that there are times in your day in which you don't remember anything. This means that we're very asleep. So you can pray to your inner divinity to help you remember what happened. We have a mantra that we use with retrospection. It's Ra Om Ga Om. You pronounce it like this. Ra Om Ga pronounce that mantra mentally. You can do it out loud as well, but I recommend do it mentally and then look to extract the moments and the events that you had forgotten or that are difficult to ascertain. Because those mantras, Salman Vior states, is like dynamite. You're blowing a hole open within your subconscious caves, your mind, so that you can go into the depths to see and shed light there. It's also important that when you're retrospecting that you observe when your thoughts and your emotions arise in connection with the visualization. So, for example, you're retrospecting your day, and suddenly, as you're thinking about an argument you had at work or a conflict, you start to feel that anger again. You have thoughts of revenge or perhaps animosity or rage. So you have to observe that reaction in you when it's happening, in response or in reaction to your visualization. The important thing is that you look at your reactions, because that's in relation to your visualization. So you can pause a moment in your retrospection and look at that defect that is so averse in you to examine it, to discern and intuit, to understand, to comprehend your mental processes. You look at your reactions. So for some people, they can like, one can uh, retrospect the entire day. You can retrospect your week. I recommend you work daily but you can perform retrospection meditations upon events that occurred even in your childhood or even when you were born. The consciousness can remember if you train it. So it's important to remember that when you're performing retrospection meditation, that you remember that your consciousness is distinct from mental processes. Your consciousness is not the, the mind. When you're remembering your day, you're not doing it with the intellect. It's a different skill. You have to learn it through practice. Visualization and perception of the events, recollection, recall, attention is very different from thought. 
you have to learn to distinguish the two. If you want to distinguish the two, I recommend learn more about self-observation. Practice that in your daily life. Study Treatise of Revolutionary Psychology by Samal and Vior. That'll teach you the distinction very clearly. When you visualize a deity, you want to achieve some relative level of mental equipoise. We have Padmasambhava here, a great Buddhist master from the Tibetan tradition. Great initiate. You can take an image of a great master, a deity, a divinity, and imagine yourself as that quality. You want to embody certain aspects of comprehension and co uh, compassion, joy, love from certain divinities or figures like Jesus or Virgin Mary. You can visualize those entities or beings and that your consciousness resonates with that, that you are that quality in your most profound depths and recesses of your heart. So pick an image or a figure that really inspires you. An image of a deity, a god, an inner being. You combine this with prayer and deep spiritual longing. You have to feel in your heart that tremendous love for that being, for that master, for your inner god even. You can take an image of your inner being if you've had that experience where you've seen your inner divinity as a figure because divinity can take any form to teach us. You can visualize that. Visualize your innermost. Uh, it's obviously a much more difficult practice if you've not had that experience, but if you do, from your meditations and internal visions, you can reflect on your true nature. Combine it with prayer, with longing, with joy. We yearn with our heart and we supplicate and beg that we may realize those qualities in ourselves. When we discern mental processes, we have to comprehend the how and the why of the mind. Serenely perceive the mind's changing states in the moment. We have to look at ourselves. How is our intellect, how is our emotions, and how are our, is our body changing moment by moment? How is it functioning? Why do we react a certain way? Why do we think certain thoughts? Why do we behave in certain circumstances a certain way? You have to look at this. When you're discerning your mental processes in meditation, you're looking within at how your different thoughts are moving about and what they're doing. You're learning to extract understanding about what is there. This is a very profound meditation that you can perform in which you're just discriminating the fluctuating thoughts and emotions from your consciousness. Again, your consciousness is very distinct from thought and emotion. They are separate when you look at their different qualities, their, their taste. They're as different as water from wine. You learn to acclimate yourself gradually to what is real from what is false. But of course, in that process, we have to learn to not identify with those thoughts and emotions and fluctuating states. You do it gradually. And of course, question yourself and what you think you see and understand and know. Because we have to very, be very cautious with our own mind to not to assume that we know what we know. Not out of a sense of morbid skepticism, but from a conscious analysis and inquiry into wanting to understand reality, our own inner states. So when you expand your consciousness, 
your mental processes will become more subtle, which thought will seek to evade our radar, so to speak. But in this practice, you're discerning your mental states. You're just looking at what's there. Don't label with your thoughts or emotions, but learn to see within what each ego or thought or feeling or memory is doing. Apprehend the phenomenon and the phenomena without conceptualizing with your mind, without boxing it up in a category and assuming that we know, but simply looking. Now, when you are working with concentration and insight, you're integrating these qualities in a deeper sense. Some principles that relate to this involve the fact that when you have greater concentration, your insight is much more profound. If you're able to focus your attention on one thing without distraction, your capacity to understand it is going to be much more deep than if your mind is fragmentary, is dispersed. As I said, imagination is the perception of non-physical imagery. That quality develops in us as we're working with concentration and stabilizing our perception. We gain greater color, vividness, intensity, sustainability, and understanding. And the overall quality and clarity of our vision increases the more we work with it and the more we remove our negative psychological defects. It's important to remember that our consciousness can only perceive before it can understand. It must first perceive before it can understand. You can't comprehend what you don't see. This is why meditation is fundamental for real change. You may intellectually conceptualize that you have a defect that you want to remove, but unless you see it, you can't do anything about it. Now, visualization in this process strengthens our insight, our ability to understand something, because when you're learning to visualize, you're granting your consciousness more strength by which to first see more, but also develop and inspire deeper concentration in you to practice more, to understand more. It's also important to remember that perfect concentration, shamatha, is not necessary to gain initial wisdom. You just need enough concentration so that you don't forget what you're doing if you really want to develop your insight further. Now, shamatha, or calm abiding, stability of concentration, without insight, can produce a very temporary state of liberation or bliss. We can feel joy, as I said, in recognizing a state of consciousness that is not identified or limited by distractive thoughts. But obviously, if you're perfecting shamatha and learning to introspect within, you can learn to access even deeper states of bliss. This state of shamatha, in which you're absorbed within concentration, is not a final state of liberation. It's not the end. There are many degrees of imaginative knowledge, inspirational knowledge, and intuitive knowledge that is accessible only when uh, we really abandon all distractions of mind. Having some stability of concentration is not the end, as some schools like to think. But we do state that perfect serenity and insight are needed if you do want complete liberation. Because in the analogy, as I mentioned to you before, the lake cannot reflect perfect images if there's any ripple there. So both are needed in their fullest forms in order to go really deep. Some advice for developing concentration. 
We recommend that you overcome procrastination, meaning try to meditate as much as you can, but don't postpone it. Do not delay the practice of meditation. Learn to cultivate some time and period in your day to actually practice so that you don't enter self-defeatism where you feel like you're beating yourself up and that you're not getting anywhere because you're morbid or sad, overwhelmed by the magnitude of this work. Start small. Begin with what you can and gradually build from there. Also, give up useless activities because the more time we give up doing senseless things, the more time we have to practice. Also, we should not forget the practices instructions, but learn to follow them. Meaning, if you're sitting to concentrate, but your mind wants to do something else, remember the practice. Don't forget the objective you've, you've established and set down for yourself to follow the whims of your mind, but learn to follow the instructions. Also, don't forget the practice. You're doing it. Don't forget that you're doing it. Remain conscious throughout. We recommend that you start with Two to three short sessions, such as five to 15 minutes each, start small but frequently. That is how you're going to go deeper in your exercises. And if you're unable to accomplish these or clarify what this all means, we recommend that you really study. Study the resources we have available and reflect on what you really want. Reflect on what you long for by approaching meditation. Because when we clarify what we want, we have a greater understanding about how to achieve it. We also have some advice for developing insight. I recommend that in the beginning, visualize less complicated objects. Don't start with something really intricate that you can't handle. Start with something small. If you're struggling to visualize with greater clarity, start smaller and simpler. If you have a larger object, you can visualize Parts of it to gain clarity or vividness, sustainability, and intensity. So if you want to take a mandala, just focus on one aspect of it. Maybe the head of a figure or the bottom. Whatever it is. And just focus on that one part. And when you master that, move on. Expand your degree of visualization. Also, practice short but frequent sessions. You want to gradually increase the time. It's important not to strain or exert your mind. Learn to relax. This is not a strenuous thing where you're trying to scrunch your eye or you scrunch your brow together to visualize something and make it happen. This practice does not require any strain. Likewise with concentration. If you find that you're tense, relax your body. Return to the visualization. And then allow the imagery to sustain itself and hold. Learn to first project that image in your consciousness. Imagine it. Learn to sustain it, and then eventually you will start to receive new perceptions and insights without you asking for them or even expecting them, more importantly. We have some resources available. You can study our course on Gnostic meditation, but also Glorian.org has a wonderful course called Meditation Essentials. We highly recommend it. And also we finished a course called the Sufi Principles of Meditation, where we go into more depth about each individual aspect of this science. We highly recommend you study them. At this point in time, I'd like to open up the floor to questions. We have a question. 
One of the things I find happens automatically if I have been away with my mind somewhere for a fair time is when I come back to where I am and become present again, which is a shock and adrenaline hits, like I've been smacked back to awareness. Any thoughts as to this or how to keep this from occurring? As it upsets any calm in the body that was there. Sometimes it's like a smack. Other times I hear a loud sound that hasn't actually happened in reality, whether like a bell or a firework bang or something similar to, again to that effect. So the question is about when coming back to the present moment, it's like having a shock, an adrenaline hit, and that one is arriving back to awareness of the present moment and that one feels an upset state no longer calm in the body or in the mind because one recognizes that one forgot oneself. It's important to distinguish between the capacity of the consciousness to remember itself, to remember divinity, the being, to remember the moment, but without a sense of self-flagellation or abrasiveness, so to speak. If I understand your question correctly, when coming back to the present moment, it can be a shock. And yes, we can forget what we've done in a moment, perhaps because we were distracted. Personally, in my experience, when I've, exp when I've had such moments, I've felt great joy in remembering that, oh, I'm supposed to remember what I'm doing, to be awake. But not out of a sense of shame or a sense of agitation or negativity. Very different. The ego is always negative, a conditioned state, which can produce a state of agitation upon our body and mind and nervous systems, particularly if we're uh, more sensitive emotionally. Uh, in psychology, they have, I believe they even refer to it as neuroticism, to be neurotic, more susceptible to negative emotions. And if we have that predisposition, sometimes having a shock of awareness in the moment can really startle us. I recommend if you're struggling with being present in the moment and if those shocks tend to disturb you, work with your heart. Learn to shock your consciousness with good energy, with a positive superior emotions. You can do the mantra, oh, especially if you want to develop that capacity in yourself so that your intuition and your conscience guides you, reminds you, hey, you forgot yourself. And now you bring yourself back to the moment without having to self-flagellate, so to speak, or to feel upset. We have a question. Can you speak on memory? What is it? What is there in relationship to the tree of life or to spontaneity of thought? Memory is ego. Typically. Our mind... Our defects are constantly immersed in the past or projecting ideas into the future. Our psychological conditions are memories. We get lost within thought that associate one event with another, with another event. And that is how the mind projects its images or its contents within the screen of our imagination. It's, it's typically negative. 
where the mind is projecting its own ideas or fantasies or remembrances about what happened. Now, in relation to the tree of life, the ego operates within the four lower sephiroth, or the four bodies of sin. We have netzach, which is the mind, hod, which is the emotions, yesod, which is our vitality, and malkut, which is our physicality. Our mind operates in relation to those four sephiroth or spheres. And the ego operates within those bodies, those vehicles. We tend to get caught up in memories within the mind, the intellect, netzach, and oftentimes have emotional responses to them, our hod, which waste and expend creative vital energy, which is yasan, oftentimes with our body without being aware of it or being agitated by those memories. So the ego is memory. It's the past. It is an illusion. If you're in the present moment, you can learn to introspect within your own states to examine those defects in meditation. There's another type of memory which is much more distinct from our common sense of it. We call it work memory, in which the consciousness can remember what happened factually. Our memories may be more or less accurate. Typically not. They tend to be half-truths. Fragments of what happened or what someone said. They're not accurate. Whereas work memory is the memory of the consciousness to understand intuitively and profoundly what our daily states were, how we behaved, what we said, what we did, what we thought, how we acted. It's work memory because you have to work to get it. You work the consciousness, you exercise it in order to remember and understand in that way. Whereas the ego doesn't work for anything. It just simply is. It's a heavy, conditioned, lethargic, negative state. It's caught up in the past or it's always projecting its anticipations and fears into the future. Now, our ego operates moment by moment. We have to examine the different trends in our psychological states to examine what is going on there. What are the interrelationships between our thoughts, our feelings, and our actions? Now, comprehension is spontaneous. It's something more deeper than thought. Comprehension happens in the moment in which you're brilliantly aware, awake, comprehending any given phenomenon. Can happen without you thinking about it. Thought is much slower. Thought is a machine. But the consciousness is what has to operate the human machine. So a very distinct difference there. If you want to learn more about those differences, you can study our course, Beginning Self-Transformation. Goes into great depth about this. We have a question. How can we transform negative mental vibrations when staring at a candle or a plant or a person? I recommend that if you're overcome by negative mental states or energies or influences, that rather than focusing on a candle or a plant, you learn to work with prayer and conjurations. We have different exercises that help to protect our mind, such as sacred sounds or mantras, from negative influences. We've given a course and are continuing to add to it on our website. It's called Spiritual Self-Defense. You can study those lectures which emphasize different practices 
in order to defend oneself from negative influences from corroding our spirituality or from influencing us in a negative way. We have a question. How do we distinguish obsessive thoughts from insights from our higher self, soul, or inner being, especially when those thoughts go against our ethics, sexuality, or lust? The answer is in your question. Your ego does not do anything in accordance with the law, spiritually speaking. Our ego always goes against our ethics. So if our thoughts and our desires, our mind, contradicts the ethical stipulations of any tradition, it means that we're being driven about by our own inner Satan, Shaitan in Hebrew, the adversary, our ego, the devil. So you learn to distinguish real insight when you're not caught up in your desires. You can only distinguish between them when you establish within yourself a space within your interior, a calm, serene, ethical state. You can't distinguish anything if you're giving in to your desires. This is the basis of any religion. If you want to learn to have insights from your inner divinity, you have to not act on your ego, your desires, your lustful thoughts. That is the beginning for everyone. It's very difficult because we have so many conditioned states and a lot of desire, but it's possible. Learn to reflect on the qualities of the prophets, the masters, the divine beings, because they can give us inspiration to want to fulfill their ethical codes of conduct. Second part of this question is that, namely, do we simply accept our truth or do we also change it, make ourselves better? Unfortunately, most of us don't know what the truth is because what we have are a lot of desires. Most people want to accept their desires at the expense of religion. This is why you find religions today have degenerated. People are basically giving in to their preferences and not really looking at the reality of their actions or what the different religious traditions and scriptures actually teach. They're adulterating what they taught. So we can't just accept our psychological state because our mind is not reality. It doesn't see reality. It doesn't see the truth. We have a lot of desires and preoccupations and preconceptions and attachments. If what we want is to enter a state of meditation, we have to learn to confront all that, to accept the fact that we are at fault. And by recognizing our own defects, we learn to change them. We don't necessarily make our egos better by cultivating more intellectualism or sentimentality or certain ritual observances without comprehension, but instead it has to do with removing the obstacles that prevent the realization of our own inner being within us. That is how we purify ourselves. We have a question. Can you speak about the importance of having a sense of awe and wonder while observing ourselves throughout the day and the importance of this sense of the consciousness. I've noticed that when my consciousness is in a more active state, this sense of awe and wonder is present within me. Yes, that's a very beautiful statement and question because when you're really observing yourself, you're seeing life in a new way. You're seeing like a child. You ever watch a child looking at things, being absorbed within the novelty of the moment? within reality, within the joy of being present. 
That is a psychological state we need to cultivate whenever we're observing ourselves, in which we have consistent and continuous awe, respect for our own inner divinity, because we are seeing life in a new way. We're not caught up in our own mind, clouded and obscured by thought. When you're actively preserving and remembering yourself, you are cultivating a real inspiration within you. And that's how you know that you're really doing it, is you feel joy in the process. Some people, they, for some reason, they get very upset and overwhelmed and angry, negative, when they're observing themselves and they see, I have such, such defects, I'm so negative, I'm so evil, and they feel very remorseful. I'm not remorseful, but morbid and repressive. And this is wrong. When you're seeing through your consciousness, you feel inspiration and joy. Very different state. And even though you may be afflicted by defects, you still feel that happiness and alert novelty in the moment by following that intuitive state. We have a question. Do you have any tips for interpreting visions or dreams? Yes. We touched upon some points in the Sufi principles of meditation, especially the lecture called Awareness, Unveiling, and Witnessing. We go into some detail about how to interpret dreams and visions, but also we're going to be giving a course very soon in person, but also we're going to broadcast the lectures. It's on dream yoga and astral travel. We're going to go into real depth, a lot of depth into many aspects of that science. We have a question. When sleeping, I would have some vivid or lucid dreams. I would then sometimes feel an intense vibration in my ears. Extremely intense with an oscillating vibration. I would try to work through that sensation, but it would ultimately just wake me up. I was also afraid every time this occurred. The vibrations were compounding with increasing intensity. Can you provide any insight? So, when you experience any type of psychic perception or sound or vision, you also must learn not to identify with it. The important thing is that whatever happens in your meditations or your dream yoga exercises, your practices, that whatever occurs, you don't identify with it. Now, personally, I've experienced many of such sounds like you mentioned, oscillations or vibrations in the brain. And in the beginning, I remember being scared of it, obviously. It's unfamiliar, it's unusual, it's strange. It's uncomfortable because we're just not acclimated to that type of transition in a conscious sense from the physical world into the internal world. When you become more familiar with them and you let them happen without fighting against them or trying to accelerate their process, you let the astral projection and the experiences unfold magically of their own. Eventually with practice, you'll get to a point where when that happens to you, you, you feel really excited I mean, you realize, I'm about to astral project. And so you let it happen, and then you go about your business in the internal worlds. So just be patient. Don't get fearful. Learn to accept what happens. Look at the psychic impressions that emerge, but don't get filled with fear. Instead, comprehend and meditate on your fears that don't like those experiences. Because the reality is that those type of vibrations are happening all the time when we go to sleep. The reality is that we just don't have any awareness of them when we do, we go to bed, we experience that every night, but we don't really do so with attention or awareness. Instead, let them happen, be patient.
We have a question. So what does it mean to go beyond duality and become one or whole if we keep having this fight against our animal instincts? That's a really good question. I like that a lot because, you know, it helps us to understand or to comprehend the different nuances of diverse spiritual philosophies, but also the practical application of those methods. Now, when you're observing yourself, there is a type of separation there. When you, as a consciousness, are looking into your, within your internal psychology and your thoughts, feelings, and body, you have to have a sense of separation as a consciousness. You're learning to look at the different multiplicity of defects that are in you. You can only do that if you're looking within and examining your relationship of your three brains to your environment. Now, the reality is that as religions teach, like in Islam or even in Hinduism, that God is one, but expresses as many. The reality is that our consciousness has the potential to be unified and whole and integral, yet for now is dispersed and fractured amongst multiple defects, like anger, pride, vanity, fear, lust, laziness, etc. Our consciousness is trapped in those defects. Now, in the process and path of meditation, we're learning to integrate ourselves more and more. Just as you integrate your concentration by learning to focus on one thing and not get distracted, in this path we learn to integrate the soul so that it can unify with divinity and therefore we become a, a unity, a perfect being. So the problem with many people who approach the ideas of duality and wholeness really do so only from an intellectual standpoint. They're not really comprehending that in order to be unified, you have to have an integral consciousness in a practical sense, in the practical dimensions of life. Now, fighting one's animal instincts can be a problem for people because in that sense, when you're exerting mental effort to repress your own mind, you're harming yourself. That's a harmful activity. We're not talking about that. When you meditate, you are not repressing your mind. Some people like to think of meditation like that, where you're just fighting your desires with your intellect or your heart. But that's not the real meaning of real, we can say, spiritual work, spiritual war. It's the consciousness that has to act. The consciousness has to look at each defect and not give in to them, not identify with them. But you don't do so by exerting effort, by fighting or repressing within your mind seeing something that's negative and then feeling shame because that's just the mind battling the mind. That's duality there. That is the dualism that keeps us hypnotized within unconscious suffering states. If you want to be integral, you have to really work with your unity, which is your consciousness. Because we do have some consciousness that's still available to us. Traditionally, we have 97% ego, according to Samalan Vior, and 3% consciousness. The problem is that that 3% tends to stay asleep and inactive. And so what happens for most people is that giving into one's desires, that 3% becomes swallowed within the rest of the ego. And that's a big problem. Now, even though we have 3% consciousness, we can still achieve a lot because that is still what remnant we have left of any integ integrity or unity within us. So it's that one unity of our soul that has to work and free the rest of the consciousness that's trapped. This process does not involve a dualistic notion of fighting oneself, like 
in the sense that your ego is fighting the ego. That doesn't work. The consciousness has to understand all the different aspects of our psychology so that it can integrate everything. It can integrate the shadow, so to speak, according to Jungian psychology. So don't create a duality within yourself in the sense that your mind's trying to fight your mind. You can only recognize what's objective and what's subjective by learning to see with a serene state of mind. Serenity does not require any type of uh, conflict of intellectual concepts. So it's a very subtle thing. It's not very easy to apprehend. I recommend study treaties of revolutionary psychology. And um, I believe Light from Darkness or The Spiritual Power of Sound by Samalan Vior. He talks a little bit about how the mind cannot fight the mind. Instead, the consciousness must understand and work upon itself. We have a question. Do we get tested more often as we work more and more on bettering ourselves? Yes, you will get challenged by divinity. Divinity is very demanding. You say you want to enter the path of initiation and spirituality. Divinity says, prove it. So if you want to show that you're really an ethical person, you get tests so that those hidden defects will come out of you so that you can see what you need to work on. We've talked about this extensively in our course, The Secret Path of Initiation, which you can study. We have a question. It's a continuation of the previous, previous ones. So do we as a physical being have a role in teaching our own soul and not simply manifesting our soul's desires? So I'd like to provide some clarity regarding a distinction between the soul and desire. We say in our studies that desire is ego. The ego wants, it craves, it needs, it seeks, it strives. It wants to be fed, my thoughts, my pride, my anger, my fear, my gluttony, my lust. That is desire. The soul is not desire in strict language. I know some people get caught up in semantics, but the soul does not crave anything. It only longs for divinity. It's a different conscious quality. It aspires to the heights, not out of ambition or pride, but from humility and love. Now, as physical beings... And as consciousness within such bodies, we have to basically train ourselves, train ourselves in meditation so that we can work. The one who teaches the soul is the being, the innermost, the divine. Now, in the process of meditation, yes, we have to train our body and our heart and our mind to work effectively, consciously. But the one who teaches you that is your, your inner being, your divine spirit who manifests his intuitions and hunches and quietudes within the heart, within our conscience. So the conscience and intuition guide us. Our inner judgment guides us in this process. Teaches us within our heart what we must apply in terms of these practices, <laughs> excuse me, in terms of these practices so that we can effectively change. We have to learn to hear that voice, but also act on it. That's what we have to teach ourselves how to do. Because the, divin the divinity within us needs us to respond. We have a choice. We can follow our desires, our egos, or 
follow the intuitions of our heart, which is ethical consciousness of being. We have a question. Should we be aware of our three brains during the day? Absolutely. That is the beginning of self-observation. You learn to examine the contents of your thoughts, your feelings, and your impulses. Three brains. Intellectual brain, emotional brain, and motor instinctive sexual brain. We have to understand how these brains function, how they operate, what their food is, how they process life within these respective machines or centers so that we can operate and manage our negotiations with the world. You have to learn how to observe how your thinking works, how your feeling works, and how your impulses manifest. Now, the important thing is not only just to be aware of your three brains, it's important to understand in a moment that you have anger boiling inside with its negative emotions and thoughts and desires to harm, whether verbally or not. The important thing to remember is that you have to be aware at first, but also to learn how to act consciously within your three brains, to transform that impression that you received. So the beginning is awareness. A lot of people are already familiar with this within spiritual circles and movements. It's the kindergarten of spirituality. Be aware of where you're at, your states of mind. But it's important not to just get stuck there. Being aware doesn't guarantee that you're going to act ethically. You can be fully aware of yourself while you're committing murder. You can be fully aware as you're stealing something from someone. Having awareness is not enough. Yes, it's the beginning. Be aware. But if you are investing your awareness within negative psychological states, it means we're awakening negatively. We're acting in a wrong way. But instead, if you really want to curtail that, first be aware, but learn to act ethically with intuition, with conscience. The more awareness you invest within transforming negative psychological states and responding to life with the highest ethical caliber, you learn to transform the situation and produce happiness for others. That means when you understand how negative thoughts work, you also understand how superior intellectual understanding emerges. You understand and learn how to work with intuitive mind, knowing an answer to a problem without having to deliberate with the intellect, with that slow and laborious process of intellectualism, with theories, with ideas. Instead, your mind can receive an insight and intuition, and then you can act with a superior emotion, with love with compassion. And that way, you're also training your motor instinctive sexual brain, not only to be aware, but to know how to respond to the higher centers of your being. Because your sexuality and your motor instinctive qualities belonging to your spine operate vertically in relation to the lower parts of your body. So they are inferior in a sense, but also they are, they are a foundation for how the other centers work. Be aware of these processes but you also want to integrate the three brains in your actions. Because with most people, we can become aware that our thoughts are in one direction, our heart isn't feeling something else, and our body wants to act in another way. That means that we're split in three. We're not integrated. First, become aware of that, but then you learn to integrate yourself by learning to act consciously, by transforming impressions, by becoming aware of that process, but also making conscious choices of how you drive your car, your human machine.
Any other questions? We have a question. My question is regarding how to distinguish the voice of the consciousness and that of the mind, emotions, and call to action by the ego. What does it mean? What does it feel like on the body when the consciousness is communicating with, with one? So, the only one who can really guide you in that is your own meditation. I can relate to qualities of my own experience, which could help inspire you and give you some sense of direction. But knowing the voice of divinity is a very difficult thing, especially because we are so hypnotized by many conditions of mind, many problems, many egos. You will know it in your heart by examining yourself and by Reflecting on how your behaviors or your tendencies either lean toward or against the ethical law of divinity, which is compassion, ahimsa, nonviolence, truthfulness, patience, humility, conscious love, chastity. If your inclinations push you to act against those ethics, you can be sure that you're being, you're being driven by your own ego. Now, the problem is our defects become very subtle as we're entering this work because as we study Gnosis and meditation, our own defects acquire a mystical flavor, which is very dangerous. The ego adapts to our studies because it doesn't want to die. Therefore, the ego wears a mystical robe adorning fornication with a type of spirituality where the mind tries to justify committing adultery or looking at the opposite sex or looking with lust upon someone because one's mystical logic, so to speak, could be I'm a spiritual person. I need to appreciate the beauty in other people. This is some of the logic that people tell themselves, but really they're just being demons. So it's very subtle. It's a good question because it's not easy to discriminate between what's real and what's false. If we had it down perfectly, it would mean that we'd have no ego. We'd be done. But in the process of changing and transforming ourselves, we have to learn to be patient. You learn to discriminate the voice of the silence in you gradually. And often after periods of great disillusionment and despair, such as we feel that we're not communicating with our inner God, we feel lost we feel disoriented. We feel in pain. But suddenly, we can get an insight in the moment, an inspiration, a realization that we can do something about our situation. And the more that we acclimate ourselves towards that hunch, those inquietudes, those longings, the greater that str and strong that voice becomes. But the problem is that we tend to just give in to our mind. We don't discriminate what's there. So the way that you do it is by meditating. That is the only way. Abandon your senses, suspend them, relax, work with energy, practice pranayama or alchemy, work with your vital force, circulate it, pray to your inner being, show me what I need to understand. Empty your mind, observe it, and look. The more you look at yourself and take the time to really meditate, the greater the distinction you will find 
between your conscience and your ego. You will know it like night and day. But right now, because we're so clouded by our own negative behaviors and our distractions and activities in life, we tend to get very lost. The water is churned and the sediment is spread out everywhere. This is why we learn serenity. Sit still, calm your mind, act ethically in the day to the best of your ability. Not going to be perfect, but you will gradually learn it. And then as you're starting to acquire serenity in yourself, the sediments of the jar start to stratify. They become layers. And then you can start to see and discriminate what's actually going on there. That is the way. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.